Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So these are all actually reminders for us that we are part of nature, isn't it? And sometimes we can forget this. We can sometimes feel as human beings that we're divorced from nature, that we're uh, better than, that we're kind of the puppeteers of the whole situation, uh, that it's under our control. So I teach in some different retreat centers uh, in different parts of the country, and uh, at Spirit Rock, one of the things I like here is that you actually have to go outside all the time. You know, like you can't really escape that contact with the weather. Now, sometimes that's really pleasant and it's beautiful and the sun is shining and there's deer and turkeys and lizards and uh, it's a, it seems like a magical wonderland. And then other times <laughs> you're being warned about winds and rain and it's cold and uh, it's not actually such comfortable conditions. But this is actually true about our lives, you know, that we are part of nature. And this is uh, one of the understandings of uh, Dhamma that I really uh, like and appreciate, is understanding that what we're doing here is actually training and understanding nature, you know, specifically the aspects of nature that are related to that which can lead us towards liberation and that which leads towards suffering. So Dhamma as the truth of the way things are. And it's something that we can discover in our own experience through our practice, which is one of the beautiful things about this uh, tradition. So this Dhamma is not something that was an esoteric philosophy cooked up by this guy in 600 BC in the woods that now you have to memorize or something like that. There's actually a quality to it of, uh, it's called in, the, in some of the chants, Ehi Pasiko, come and see. You know, come and see and check it out yourself through your own experience, see what is true. You know. And in this way, we each can realize this and then live from this truth, you know, live from what is actually uh, aligned with the way things are. So we learn about nature in different ways uh, as we grow up. And one of the examples I like to um, give is that, uh, for example, the law of gravity is an aspect of nature. That when you're a baby, when you're born, uh, you don't necessarily know about this. And you can see babies sometimes, or little kids, we'll say, uh, experimenting with this in their high chairs. So they're sitting there and they're eating their food in some matter, but then periodically they're like dropping things off the high chair to check it out and see what happens. And so like, what happens? Like, oh, you drop something, it falls to the ground, right? So then you might check it out on the other side. Well, what happens if you do it on this side also? Like, oh, yeah, that also, right? And then what happens if you're not looking and you do it? Oh, yeah, also still it does, right? (laughs) So then after a while you get the picture, you get the, the pattern here, and you understand, like, oh, so... For some reason, you don't even know why, but it doesn't even matter why. You know, it just matters that you understand the pattern. You know, if you try and place something in midair, <laughs> it's likely to fall and break, right? So it's better to place it on some surface like this. And as I learn to do that, I have less 
messes, broken glass, spillage uh, in my life. Right. And now if by some reason, at some point, something happens accidentally, like something that's pushed off like that, I actually already understand that that was going to happen, even if I forgot for a moment. Right. So then I can just pick it up. You know, It's not a big deal and put it back. So it's minus the added friction of uh, internal drama. Like, why me? Why now? Why did that happen? You know. So you don't need any of that because you already picked up the pattern. Okay, that's what happens. Pick it up, do it, deal with it, move on. Right? So this is actually like learning about the Dhamma. So learning about the truth of the way things are. And some of the aspects of this as we pay attention, for example, is that everything in our experiential reality is in flux. So is changing, is moving, is impermanent. And the Buddha described this as, as something to pay attention to. This is kind of one of the, the um, tools we can use, sort of an aspect, a characteristic that it's helpful to tune into uh, that can help us to pry open the, the usual way we relate to life and to circumstance. So as we understand that everything is changing, then we can uh, see that nothing is actually one solid thing. So there's a non-solidity to things a non-thingness, if you will. So for example, this wooden stool here, this podium here, it's useful for me. I'm putting some this glass and some papers on it. So it's functional, and we could say that it's a podium, but if we go back in time a little bit, you know, this was some planks of wood. And if we go back further from that, this was actually a tree. And if we go back further from that, it was a seed in the ground. So this is part of a process, you know, this thing. In the moment, it's a thing, but it's actually not a thing. You know, it's part of a process of the seed becoming a sapling, becoming a tree, becoming wood planks, becoming at the moment this uh, podium or this bench. And now already I can see that uh, the varnish is going a little bit here. You know, it's getting some chips and stuff. So then after some time, uh, it will become perhaps not dignified enough to have in our Dharma hall or... Uh, decide it's time to get a new one. And it will get uh, maybe taken to some, someone's office probably. And then after a while it will get tossed out. Right? So then it will return to the garbage heap and it will start to decay. And it will turn to pulp. It will turn to dust. It will eventually return to the ground. So that's the story of this, uh, what I call now podium, which is a useful word for it and refers to it. But actually, it's not a thing. It's not frozen in time. It's not going to be there forever. And you could actually tell this story about everything that you encounter. You know, your clothes, you could tell this story about this stage, uh, this building, the walls, you know, made of uh, concrete, made of uh, ground minerals, uh, the glass even here, you know. So what's, what's happened here is there's a moment of... <laughs> This things have arisen in this way, but everything is on a journey. Everything is in motion. Now you can kind of conceptually get that, and it might be you know interesting or even kind of cool to think about. But then, of course, we need to direct that to the most relevant item <laughs> to investigate, uh, which is actually ourselves. So, in fact, this is actually true about ourselves too. That everything that we experience as our body, uh, as our thoughts, as our emotions, as that which we usually consider ourself, is also in constant motion. There is actually no solidity to this. 
There's nothing to hold on to. So we ourselves are actually this process. You know, we're a flow. So science corroborates this too. Um, so I'll read you some, uh, something from an article I found in the New York Times. And it's called, Your Body is Younger Than You Think. So we'll start by examining the body itself. Now for some of it, it's pretty clear already from the aging process, we notice some things shifting and changing. But this is actually some different news for you. Whatever your age, your body is many years younger. In fact, even if you're middle-aged, most of you may be just 10 years old or less. Although people think of their body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux as old cells are discarded and new ones generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by its cells. The cells lining the stomach last only five days. The red blood cells, bruised and battered, after traveling nearly a thousand miles through the maze of the body's circulatory system, last only 120 days or so on average before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis, or the surface layer of the skin, is recycled every two weeks or so. The reason for this quick replacement is that this is the body's saran wrap, and it can be easily damaged by scratching, solvents, wear, and tear. As for the liver, the detoxifier of all the natural plant poisons and drugs that pass our lips, its life on the chemical warfare front is quite short as well. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years, not days, but are still far from permanent. Even the bones endure a nonstop makeover. The entire human skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years or so in adults as twin construction crews of bone dissolving and bone rebuilding cells continue to remodel it. So that's the story of your body. (laughs) It seems kind of solid. Maybe every little while or so you notice it's gotten grayer or fatter or thinner or this or that. But actually this is happening at a much faster rate, isn't it? You know, and it's, it's at a rate that's more than we can actually perceive uh, with our eyes. So this is not just uh, theoretical uh, or poetic. You know, this is actually scientifically true. You know, we are living organisms. And West did the meditation with uh, considering the elements, uh, which is a very beautiful way for us to connect with that. So for example, you know, we are made three quarters of water, our physical body which is actually the same as the earth. The earth is also three-quarter made of water. And I understand that uh, the liquid in the body is also replenished uh, about every seven days. So it's kind of like we're little filters, like we pour in water and it filters through, comes through the blood and all the different systems, and uh, urine, sweat, everything, and then uh, gone. So uh, it's interesting to think about this because People came from very different places to here, you know, but uh, in seven days, by the end of the retreat, we'll all be three-quarter the same. You know, we're going to be made of, <laughs> we'll be, I'll be made of spirit rock water, you know. <laughs> so already we're halfway there, right? <laughs> all of us, right? whether you like it or not. 
So then given that this is uh, the case, that uh, everything is changing uh, in the body, and then I'll address for a moment also in the mind and the emotions, then uh, there is actually no solidity to anything. Uh, and so this comes to the third characteristic, which is about uh, dukkha. So this insubstantial, insubstantialness of everything, in particular ourselves, uh, leads to an unreliability. There is an unreliability of experiential phenomenon. So this sounds like bad news. You know, it's unreliable. So everything that I want, my, the way I look and possessions I have and relationships and bank account and job titles, everything is actually unreliable. You know, it's unstable. You know, we can't permanently fix it like that. But it's just the way things are. And it's possible for us to develop a sense of okayness with this when we let go of seeking happiness in the permanency of these experiences. And it's difficult. You know, it's difficult because for most of us, uh, there is a tendency of the unawakened heart and mind to seek satisfaction, to seek security, to seek some kind of stability in that which we see around us. So we invest a lot in uh, the external world. We invest a lot in our appearance and trying to make it just so. We invest a lot in trying to arrange circumstance to be according to our wishes. We try to create a relationship that will stay and last. In fact, if you look at the usual strategies we have for happiness, we usually run something along the lines of, you know, if you say there's maybe 10 different categories of your life, of uh, your job and your, career, your uh, family and your friends, maybe your physical health, your creative life, uh, it could be your uh, financial life, maybe your automotive life or your, uh, you know, these different things like that, right? Our usual recipe for happiness is I want everything to get to 10, if it's, if it's judged on a scale of 1 to 10, and then I want it to stay there. Yeah. And I'll be happy when I can get everything to 10 and it will stay there permanently for keeps. And if anything starts to drop, then I'll be unhappy about it. I'll feel insecure about it. And I got to pump a lot of effort into making that one come up again. So unfortunately, the way the world is, uh, life is a series of trade-offs and everything is not under your control. So you can see this is a doomed strategy. You know, it's a, uh, we can hold with compassion. This is a doomed strategy for uh, satisfaction, for a place to uh, put our trust. Because oftentimes, for example, when things are going really well in your work, you're probably working a lot, so then maybe you're spending less time with your family. Or maybe sometimes when you're very physically fit, you're spending a lot of time exercising and you spend less time with your friends. And sometimes uh, your car is broken down and uh, it's not under your control. As soon as you get a haircut, it already starts growing out again, (laughs) you know, into something that you don't like again, you know. So this is is samsara, this is the, the experiential world. You know, this is the world of change and flux that we live in. Uh, So we have to seek something else for our stable, lasting happiness. And this is what the path is pointing us towards, seeing through our usual strategies uh, for this.
So a lot of you have come here, and as you sit here, trying to pay attention to what's happening in the body and the mind, you notice a momentum, the momentum of mental patterns, of psychological patterns, right? uh, of relationships. You notice the momentum of physical life, uh, of tiredness or of old injuries. So this is uh, understood uh, to be part of the natural world. This is how things are. So then how do we work with that in the moment? So Rick talked about the uh, Four Noble Truths and uh, First Noble Truth of recognizing that uh, there is this dukkha. So there is this uh, pain, stress, unsatisfactoriness, unreliability about our lives. And oftentimes when you come on retreat, the first thing that you get is a good old dose of that. So a lot of the stuff that we were kind of dodging, paying attention to, spent some energy distracting ourselves from, kind of cutting off all the routes of escape here. You know. So, okay, no TV, uh, nobody to call on the phone, no one to talk to, no internet, no alcohol, uh, like pretty much nothing. You know, you can like look at a tree or something, but there's like, you know, <laughs> you're really like stuck uh, dealing with this stuff in the mind and the body. You know, it's there and there's very little uh, escape. And it's a very courageous thing to do, I'll say. You know, it's, it's good to honor that. It's, it's not easy to do this. It's very profound work. Uh, the first thing that we find, you know, and, and Rick was referring to this, in the, you know, as we try to just let things be, is that it's difficult to do that. So why is that difficult? So first is that we, f- we find things arising in our mind-body system that it's hard for us to be with, you know, that are suffering, that are unpleasant. Or even just that don't fit with our view of who we are. So this could even be things that are actually uh, good things that arise that don't fit with our idea of who we are. And so we struggle with them. We machinate around them. So our first job is actually, you know, starting to see that which was hidden previously. You know, having the courage to open up to that which we usually cannot be with. So you could say that, you know, in our usual life, let's say that this paper is the entirety of what comes through the body-mind system. So emotions, physical experiences, memories, uh, thoughts, And for most people, there's some things that are okay, but there's some things in our life that we don't really want to deal with. And so when they come up, we kind of have to put blinders on. You know, we have to push it away. So for example, it could be physical pain. It's very difficult for us to be with physical pain. We don't have tools to do that, to be with that. So let's say physical pain comes up. You know, we have to push that away. So fold that over. Close down uh, our awareness with that. Distract get lost in delusion, imagine something else happening. Supposing there are sorts of memories that come up that you don't want to deal with. So then these memories of the past, so push that away. Supposing there is uncertainty about the future, that's difficult to deal with. 
So then we'll push that away. Supposing we're uncomfortable with sexual feelings as they arise. And then even more so when you think, I'm on a retreat, I shouldn't be having these, right? So then you got to push those away. And then depending on your conditioning, uh, you know, you might have conditioning that's like uh, sadness, you know. If I'm a real man, I can't be sad, I should not cry, and push that away, right? Or for some women, it's like, oh, I shouldn't be angry, that's not nice, and push that away. So you see what happens here, you know, so then this is basically where you get to live, this tiny crunched up little region, you know, like that's all. And basically everything else that comes up, you have to spend all this energy putting on the blinders, putting on the blinders, putting on the blinders, you know, pushing it away. You have so much energy gone to resistance to that which is just part of the flow. So oftentimes first part of practice is us just learning to relax Learning to open. And this is really part of it is like not identifying with it, being able to see it for what it is, with neither pushing it away nor identifying with it, nor indulging it. Right? So as we relax and start to open, then we can be with the entirety of this. Yeah. And that's a very worthwhile thing to develop in practice. Right? Yeah, for those of you who are new to the insight meditation tradition, the joke is that when you first start you get a lot of insight, but most of it is bad news. Right? You know? <laughs> and this is kind of what I'm referring to with this, is that there's a lot that is difficult for us to be with. You know? But really the intention here is for us to develop our capacity uh, to be with those things, because they were happening anyway. You know, that was coming through anyway, and usually driving us in some way, unseen, you know, untended to. You know, it affects uh, the way that we are with others. It affects the way that we are with ourself. So learning to read this, learning to see this, is a very good step in this direction. So then as we are able to develop this sense of uh, mindfulness and awareness, uh, seeing things just as they are, you know, trying to let go of the repressing things, uh, and also trying to let go of indulging or over-identifying with things, uh, we can start to see into, you know, what is the nature of this, this life? What is the nature of who I seem to be? You know, what is the nature of a relationship to experience and the world? So we can develop this facility with a lot of these different areas of the body, with emotions, and then also in the most subtle level area with thoughts. Yeah, to understand and see the way in which that which we call the world is oftentimes constructed by our ideas of that. So you can see this as you're sitting here uh, in a room, which is you know, pretty decent temperature. No one's really bugging you. You know, your job is to sit here, just breathe and notice what happens. And no one is bugging you, but then you get bugged, right? So what happens in that? You know, pay attention, because the keys to freedom are in noticing this, in seeing through a lot of what happens. So sometimes it's in the realm of the physical body, you know, that something arises, a sensation in the body that's difficult. Uh, and there's the physical sensation, but then there also is the thoughts in the minds about that. 
So, oh no, my leg hurts. If I stay in this position, I wonder if it'll continue to hurt. I wonder if it'll hurt for a long time. I wonder if it'll be hard for me to walk down the hill. Right? I wonder if later I'll have to get one of those scooters too, and so on. Yeah, so we go down this road of like creating as imagined ideas of the difficulties that are, and meanwhile, actually, the pain may even have passed, right? But we're living in the realm of our, our mind. So seeing through this, this realm of thought and perception, you know, learning to understand that, to see it just as it is. My favorite uh, story about this is uh, of a person who goes into a cave and they paint a picture of a tiger. And then they look at it and they go, ah, tiger, and they run out of the cave screaming. Yeah. So like, what happened there? Like, where was the tiger? You know, there was no tiger. <laughs> they made it up, but they forgot they made it up, and then it terrified them, and they responded to that. So see how often this happens to you in your practice here. You see how often this happens in our life, where we're imagining something from the past, projecting something from the future, believing in it, and then inhabiting this made-up world. So this realm of thought is a subtle one to to look into, and we can see the way in which thoughts create uh, a projected existence for ourselves. One of the most helpful ones to start to catch, catch on to also is the idea of me as a separate, solid, independent entity in space. Yeah. So I, that, that here is me, independent of all others, that needs to be defended and uh, worked with, and here is me and here is the other, and we're in conflict and so on. So basically the arising of a sense of self is what I'm talking about. So I've got interest in this, um, a little bit of this, you know, f- uh, philosophy of mind kind of thing too. And uh, I've been reading some some things in the Western philosophy about this, and, and they also largely agree that uh, there is no permanent, solid entity of self. And one of the interesting uh, concepts about this I read was that you know in in philosophy there's this idea: well, if there was someone who was sort of running the show, separate self, then they call this the homunculus. You know, it's sort of like there's a small person in your head who's like running everything. But then you still have the dilemma of like, well, who is running the homunculus? Right? So then you have to get a smaller person in that one's head. You know, and then well, who's running that one? This is a smaller, you know. And then basically you get an infinite regression back, and you're still left with the original question. Right? So look into this. You know, see like what is true about this. Uh, and this this aspect of perception, particularly about perception of self and other, is a very helpful and important one to to catch on to, and also a very subtle one, you know, a pretty subtle one because it it happens so fast, and sometimes it happens in words, and sometimes it's just uh, a sense, you know, energetic sense that arises. It's kind of a coagulation, let's say. So this understanding and seeing through perception is actually uh, very important both for our own liberation but also for the liberation of uh, all of us, you know, for our collective freedom, you could say. So if you can uh, remember back all the way to the uh, beginning of the retreat when 
we were here and uh, the managers came and did their talk and then uh, teachers came on stage and did some intro stuff and then uh, we had you go uh, like do a little reorganizing right to uh, move the cushions up and the chairs up and so on and uh, in that movement, I was making some uh, comments about it that I think were lost since my uh, colleagues did not understand my metaphors with that, so I thought I would reiterate them. <laughs> since they did not, then probably nobody did. I did not explain it well enough. Uh, which was, you know, that when we were sitting in the back there, you know, before coming up here, I could see how far it is, like from the very back of the room to the front, right? Uh, and when you're in the front, like, you don't see that, right? Like, when you're in the front of the room... Uh, you only see what's in front of you, but you don't see what's behind you. And this is kind of true in terms of our society, too. You know, and in the, in these days there is a, a huge disparity of wealth in our uh, country. You know, it's, it's quite stark and it's gotten worse over the last uh, 20, 30 years. Where, you know, 1% of people own uh, 40% of the wealth and 80% of the people own 7% of the wealth. Uh, which would be equal, okay if everyone is doing okay, but we're not, you know? Really, like, a lot of people are not uh, doing well. And many of you are probably aware there's been uh, a lot of uh, attention paid recently, particularly to uh, issues of racial justice, and particularly around the killing of unarmed black men, uh, and actually also uh, children, uh, by police officers who then have not been uh, put on trial. You know, the, uh, these episodes have just happened, and then the uh, charges are dismissed, right? So before I came here, I was talking to a friend of mine um, about this, and I was kind of surprised to realize, like, he didn't know at all that this was going on. Uh, and I was kind of stunned by this, because I felt like it was very up, and, uh, like, how could you avoid this? But in some ways, because he was in the front of the pack, you know, like in his world, it did not impact him. He was actually a, a very well-off, um, successful uh, white man who uh, lives in a good neighborhood, a, a affluent neighborhood. And kind of now through the internet, we can kind of filter our news. You know, so he filtered news and got things that are of relevance to uh, his professional life and so on. Uh, but in some ways, like sort of missed seeing other aspects that affect other people. So this is kind of what I was pointing to, sort of like when we're in the front or we don't see what's behind us, you know. And here we're, this is a metaphor, so I'm not digging the people in the front here, right, actually. Uh, but it's kind of true that, you know, like how do we, uh, how do we perceive what's around us? And um, in one of the groups we were talking about this too, about the, the scope of awareness, you know, developing scope of awareness. So that sometimes with our um, mindfulness practice, it's appropriate for there to be, you know, really detailed fine-grained awareness, and then sometimes uh, open up. So sampajanya, clear comprehension, right? Or um, a wise attention. Yoniso manasakara, the Buddha said. So appropriate attention and scope for what's going on. Right? And particularly in these cases of, uh, you know, suffering and racial justice, uh, you could look back to historical causes uh, that are there for us as a society, and then kind of the way it manifests individually uh, in terms of perception and misperception in different moments, right? So in hearing the accounts, uh, different accounts of uh, these different episodes, uh, 
you hear from the police officer who has a very different account of their perception, their misperception, actually, of this unarmed individual, you know, a misperception of the danger uh, because of racial stereotypes, and then an inappropriate action, you know, an action that's way out of proportion to what's happening based on that. And then also on the other side, you have like a, a fear and mistrust that happens uh, from communities of color because of harassment from police, you know, over and over again. So our attention to becoming aware of perception, the images that arise in our mind, you know, our ideas of self and other, you know, it's for our own liberation, but actually it's critical for our societal liberation as well. You know, none of us here are exempt from paying attention to this. You know, we all have been conditioned by the same bad downloads, you know, from society, you know, from hundreds of years of history uh, that have, have driven us in the wrong direction, you could say. Now, it's not just about uh, individuals changing. It's also about systems changing uh, and about the legal system changing about our awareness about environmental justice changing, you know, all of this. But uh, attending to perception is also key to this, you know, understanding the way in which misperception arises uh, for ourselves and with others. So the, the protests have continued uh, around uh, this, these incidents of uh, racial injustice. And uh, one encouraging story uh, around this I heard was from the city of Richmond, California. Uh, Some of you may even be from Richmond. And Richmond is a city in which there's been a lot of difficulty, like a lot of uh, crime, a lot of violence, until about six years ago when a new police chief came in and there were some uh, new batch of city councilors and they decided to take a different approach, uh, which is called like community policing. And what this involved was actually uh, going door to door, and they involved also like they got some, uh, they call them the police cadets, teenage police cadet explorers, right, and adult volunteers. And they basically got the community involved in trying to create a safe community. Uh, and the police chief, who seems like a remarkable guy, a guy named Chris Magnus, uh, who's actually a gay white man, came in about uh, six years ago, uh, said, that there's no substitute for face-to-face interaction. You know, unless you are um, making an arrest or responding to a call, then we should be spending our time in face-to-face interaction. So we'll walk around, we'll talk to people, we'll knock on doors, we'll build relationships, and this will actually create the web of uh, safety. And some community organizers in the community said, you know, I found him to be a credible person and a man of his word. He's not failed me yet. And that's remarkable, right? A shift in... uh, a community. So during, uh, on this Tuesday, there was a, a protest that was uh, sponsored by the Rise Youth Center. Uh, some friends of mine are, uh, work at this center. Uh, and so they had 100 mostly youth uh, outside in uh, Richmond. And they held signs, Black Lives Matter. Right? And they had a big boombox playing uh, speeches of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And included in this protest was the police chief. So the police chief, white police chief, showed up with a sign, uh, Black Lives Matter. And so did the deputy chief, and so did many police officers. 
And he said, the police chief said, you know, I spoke with my command staff and we, we agreed that it would be important to convey our commitment to peaceful protest and also that black and brown lives do matter and to help bridge the gap that we understand sometimes exists between police and community. So it's a very sensible thing to do, uh, but it's so rare. I have not heard of any other cases in the country in which this has happened, you know, in which the police have actually gone out in this way. You know. And it's this kind of, this is like actually an act of, of metta. You know, it's an act of uh, generosity, you know, of love, of truth-telling. You know, like we are on the same side here you know, as police. Like we believe that your life matters. You know. It's very touching. It's very moving. So there are other things that have been going on this week, including the uh, awarding of the Nobel Prize to uh, Malala Yousafzai, the youngest Nobel Prize winner in history, age 17, who is a young Pakistani girl who was actually uh, shot for uh, her involvement in advocating for girls' education uh, and survived that shooting miraculously and has actually continued to speak out moved to England, and uh, she spoke in front of the United Nations. Um, some of you might have seen the video of that, and it's just remarkable, her poise and uh, articulate, articulateness for a 14-year-old girl at the time, or 15-year-old, you know, addressing the United Nations. And then there have been continued to be protests also about uh, the disappearance of students in uh, Mexico. Right? So talk about turning around to seeing what's happening. You know, we focus very much on what's happening here, but in our neighbor, just to the south, there's been a dramatic incident of 43 students uh, who were protesting, who disappeared, right? Uh, and it's been a catalyst for movements for uh, liberation in that country, right? For uh, less uh, corruption and for freedom of speech and so on. Right? And the slogan from that movement that really... Um, affected me was they tried to bury us but they did not know that we were seeds right? they tried to bury us but they did not know that we were seeds you know? and the ground is watered by our blood and our sweat and our protest you know? and we rise up stronger together so our practice here is both to cultivate the wholesome, and as Rich, Rick said, to uh, pay attention to when there's something positive happening and to expand that, you know, allow that to expand, right? To learn to inhabit and to true our system up to those states of well-being and contentment and freedom. And also at the same time, actually, to expand our ability to be with suffering. You know, to expand our ability to turn around and see what's happening. And this is the suffering of our own life and in the lives of others. And it's so essential, you know, for our planet. It's so essential for our world, for this to happen. You know, sometimes you spend a bunch of time on retreat and it just seems like, why am I doing this, <laughs> right? You kind of lose track and it's like, uh, just slogging on through and I'm just sitting and I'm just walking and, you know. You're actually contributing in many different ways to the liberation, you know, to this capacity to free yourself to increase your capacity to connect with the suffering of yourself and others. The capacity to listen 
uh, as the police in Richmond are now doing. The capacity to be resilient and to rise up, as Malala did, and as the protesters in Mexico are doing also. So don't think that your practice is just for yourself. What you're doing is actually something very profound that will bear fruit for yourself, for everyone that you encounter in the future, for whatever the work is that you're called to do in the world when you leave here. Thomas Merton also talks about uh, you know, monastics, or we could say for the moment, we are actually being like these monastics, as being like, uh, like trees, like uh, air fresheners in the world. It's kind of a beautiful thing. So, like, we're all like uh, purifying the air, you know, quietly here, you know. And it's true when you think about, like, what is it that emanates off of us? You know, is it going to be hatred and aggression, fear, violence, or is it going to be a good heart with listening, with love, with compassion? So, thank you for your practice here. Your practice is not just for yourself, and I implore you to do your practice with sincerity. You know, don't worry about what happens or seems to happen from it. Just do your best. You know. So our work in the lab is really critical for the survival of our species, uh, for all of us as humans, uh, and for what the state of the world will become. So the Buddha says, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. And nor can anyone do as much benefit for you, not even your mother or father or the most beloved unto you. So train your mind diligently. Work out your own liberation with diligence. So let's sit together for a moment. as we do this important and sometimes challenging and sometimes beautiful practice in our lab of connecting with the truth of the way things are. We can bring to mind all those who are suffering in the world, those who we know personally, and all those larger conditions that call for our attention. So we can do this practice not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of all of these. We share the blessings from our practice with all those that we know, with all those that we don't know, 
for all beings in all states of existence. May we all see through the illusion of who we think we are and live in the truth of the Dhamma. So it's good weather for meditation, as I said. So we'll have a period of walking practice and then a final sitting of the evening uh, here. And in this regard, if you have uh, energy to continue, and even if you might think that you don't, uh, I encourage you to, uh, as part of this part of this, we're kind of expanding our ability to be present under different conditions. You can just check it out and see like, oh, what would it be like to uh, sit even if I'm a little sleepy and see? could sleep in tomorrow, right? It's like, let me see what it's like to be present under different conditions, including little discomfort or cold or this or that, right? But if you've really had it, of course you've had it, but uh, try to uh, increase our ability to be with different conditions too. So please also enjoy your practice. Thank you. <laughs>